episode of Book em Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I'm your beautiful and wonderful host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. I'm a wildly unsuccessful writer and self-proclaimed rerun junkie. I tend to mostly watch shows that went off the air before I was even born. I have always loved reruns. I've always loved old shows. My favorite show as a kid growing up was Gilligan's Island. To me, they're not only time capsules depicting a certain area of time, a certain span of time, but they also reflect what was going on, what was culturally relevant around that time. I knew of Hawaii Five-O through the pop culture references like Book of Dano, but I didn't actually get to watch the show until around 2009, 2010. At the time, I didn't have a steady day job. I was working from home and I would put the TV on um, for background noise. And one of our local stations played, I know it was Hawaii Five-O, something else in Little House on the Prairie in the afternoons. And so that's how I got started watching Hawaii Five-O. I ended up watching it more than I was working. And what drew me in was not just the locale because they have, I, it was shot on location. So they use, they use it so well. I mean, there's very few sets used on the show, but also the fashion six, it's late sixties all the way through the seventies fashion, but it's Island fashion. So it's glorious throughout most of the run. The guys, when they're at work, they're in business suits, subdued suits. And then you get to see them when they're in their off-duty clothes and you're like, I did not realize that was the personality under there. There was also this this rule, unspoken rule that whenever they went undercover doing anything, it seemed like they had to wear the ugliest shirts they could find. And I fell in love with that. And eventually I started paying more attention to the show, more attention to the stories and what was going on. And some of the, some of the episodes really captured my attention. They were really great episodes. And some of them are really kind of wackadoodle in, in nature and in certain cases. But even though I fell in love for all the wrong reasons, my love is true. And Hawaii Five-0 has become one of my favorite shows. For those of you stumbling in, Hawaii Five-0 was a TV crime drama that aired from 1968 to 1980 and was recently rebooted in 2010. I'm covering the old show, though I will talk about the new reboot series when applicable. Why am I doing this podcast when there's already a glut of, of podcasts covering a wide variety of topics out there? Because I feel it is my duty to educate the masses. You see, the genesis of this idea started when the brilliant and wonderful Dan Budnick uh, had a momentary lapse of judgment and asked me to guest host on his podcast, eventually Super Train, discussing the Green Hornet. And over the course of discussing 26 episodes and a Batman crossover, I would endeavor to bring up Hawaii Five-O whenever I could. So Dan kindly made the suggestion of getting my own podcast and even supplied the name, Bookum Dano. And while I debated about going through with this idea, he started another podcast called Rockin' All Week With You. It's a Happy Days podcast. And during uh, the course of the f his discussion of the first season, he brought up Hawaii Five-0 a couple of times. The first time he was talking about other shows that were still on the air at the time, and he described Hawaii Five-0 as still kicking around and then later when he was discussing ratings, he seemed surprised that Hawaii Five-0 would be so highly ranked. It was 1974. It was Hawaii Five-0's sixth season in the middle of a 12 season run. 
and one of their better seasons. I mean, it started off with Hookman. Of course it was going to be highly rated. As you can see, I realized then that it fell upon me to educate the masses of the greatness that is Hawaii Five-O. So if you have any complaints, you can direct those to dan at uh, eventuallysupertrain.blogspot.com. Actually, no, I'm kidding. Uh, Dan's really great. He did. We did come up with this idea while I was guesting on his show, and he does a whole range of really super great podcasts, and you should check them out. Now, here's where I include the huge disclaimer. First of all, this series went on for 12 seasons. It's 280 episodes. That's a lot, and I have serious commitment issues, and I'm lazy. So, as much as I would like to be able to say definitively that I'll be able to get through the whole series, um, I just can't make that promise. I really hope to. Right now I'm breaking up that goal into little bits. My first goal is to get through the first season of the series. If I think if I do that, I'll be able to make it. Second of all, my recording setup is pretty um, questionable. Unlike a lot of people, I don't have a designated computer room. I live in a very small house with two other people. We don't have a lot of space. So right now I'm recording in what is called the box room. Basically it's kind of a half redone spare room that we put boxes in. The, the people in this house, we order a lot of stuff online. We open it, we throw the boxes in the box room. The cats play in the boxes for a while and then we periodically throw them out and then new boxes show up. So that's where I'm recording because it's the point in the house farthest away from the other humans that live here, but they are incredibly loud humans and they watch TV at incredibly loud volume. They are right now in the other room talking very loudly about cat vomit. I also live in a society. I have neighbors. The neighbors that are closest to us have dogs. They bark a lot, so you might be able to hear that sometimes. We have loud geese that fly by periodically. I have a crow that yells at squirrels in the backyard sometimes. There are birds. There are so many birds. I also fidget a lot when I talk. I talk with my hands. You're gonna hear me moving around. I have all of my notes. Most of my notes are, are in an actual physical notebook. You're gonna hear pages rustling. You're gonna hear me. You're gonna hear me talking with my hands because I will hit myself. I will, I will hit my legs. I will uh, hit my jewelry. I can't sit still. I've tried. I've recorded in multiple situations to try to minimize it and I simply can't. I'm a fidgeter. I drove every speech teacher crazy because I could not stand still while giving a speech. I just can't do it. I can't be still and talk. I'm far too expressive for such things. Basically what I'm saying is, is I don't have the equipment nor the setup that would provide optimal recording conditions. So you're gonna get some ambient noises. Those are free of charge. I will do what I can to reduce them as much as possible. And hopefully recording conditions will improve in the future. You might also notice the patchwork kind of quality to the episodes, at least for the first few. And that's because that even with notes and everything, I still forget things that I want to say. So I go back and add them in later, or I decide that I need to say something better, so I redo it, and it's the kind of perfectionism that will eventually fade away as I do this more often and, and get more comfortable with it. 
I also struggle with my voice modulation because like I said, this setup is questionable and I am expressive. But enough of these pleasantries. Let's go to Hawaii. Well, thank you for your help, McGarrett. Intelligence will take over from here. Is that an order? Everybody knows that Steve McGarrett only takes orders from the governor and God. Occasionally, even they have trouble. Episode 1, Cocoon, air date September 20th, 1968, written by Leonard Freeman, the creator, and directed by Paul Lindkos. Uh, he directed three episodes. The body of McGarrett's friend Hennessy, who works in intelligence, is found on the beach. He apparently drowned, which uh, Steve quickly knows isn't true because Hennessy didn't swim. So he goes to his apartment and finds takes a look around to see what he's been working on and finds some evidence that has been partially destroyed, which he pockets, and then he conveniently finds the man who was doing the destroying of the evidence and ends up shooting him in self-defense. At that moment, two other intelligence agents show up, Brent and Miller. There's a tense exchange. Brent advises McGarrett to back off, but of course McGarrett won't. Instead, he sends Kono to check in with everybody in Hennessy's datebook, especially Rosemary Kwong, who is apparently the last person to see him alive. He also uh, sends the John Doe who attempted to murder him, sends his fingerprints off to be analyzed. He also checks in with the coroner for the autopsy results of Hennessy. The autopsy re reveals that prior to death, gutta percha had been uh, used on his eyes, nose, and ears. At Hennessy's funeral, Miller passes Steve a note to meet him later, which he does, and then reveals to Steve that several other operatives have also been killed in accidents, including a guy named Henderson in Jakarta. Steve takes that information to the Attorney General to get him to have Henderson's body exhumed and examined for the gutta percha to see if there is a link in the deaths. Uh, Danny put pieces together some of the torn up papers that uh, McGarrett found in Hennessy's apartment and all he can come up with for sure is the word Arcturus and the word Cocoon. Meanwhile, Kono finally finds Rosemary Kwong. Turns out she was in the lockup across the street the entire time. Steve goes to talk to her, uh, arranges a deal to get her out of jail in, in exchange for answering questions, which she takes once she finds out that Hennessy is dead. She ends up giving them the last clue, which is that Hennessy got a phone call the night that they were together to go down to the pier. With that information, Steve realizes that Arcturus is actually SS Arcturus. It's a ship. They find out where it's at, what pier it's at. Uh, Steve then works with the, uh, the dock master there to get on board posing as a workman because the, the ship's in dock for repairs. While on the ship as the workman, he manages to sneak off and he finds the cocoon chamber. He then takes all of this information back to the governor um, and along with the evidence that there was gutta percha in Henderson's eyes, ears, and nose, he explains to the governor that Brent and Miller have frozen him out otherwise. Brent especially has frozen him out on this. Otherwise, they need to go. They're going to need help with this. So they end up bringing into the uh, head of counterintelligence in the Asiatic Pacific, Pacific Asiatic Theater, 
Jonathan Kay, who comes in on his jet. And it's during this little meeting that it's revealed that each agent that was that supposedly died in an accident didn't and they all gave up information before they died. And the information they were giving up basically led these culprits to Hawaii looking for someone called Control, a person who knows all of the agents everywhere because the agents in the field only know what they need to know in order to complete their mission. So a plan is devised to program Steve with false information to be control. Let that information leak out that he knows something so he'll be captured and then hopefully he will be subjected to the same treatment as Hennessy and Henderson and the others in order to, to make him divulge this fake information, put it out there so counterintelligence can track it. So all goes according to plan. Steve gets kidnapped. Meanwhile, the ship is being staked out, which Chinaho is uncomfortable with because the ship is carrying uh, a lot of barrels of diesel fuel, so any wrong shot and the whole harbor goes up. Steve, meanwhile, is taken and prepped to go into the cocoon tank, and our nefarious villain, who we will be seeing off and on over the next 12 years, Wofat, asks Steve McGarrett, will you answer? And I think we all know how Steve is going to answer, but I would still rather you experience that for yourself. Now, here's the thing. This originally aired as a TV movie back in 1968. For syndication, reruns, and for streaming, it's been cut up into two different episodes, so it's a two-parter. And for whatever reason in syndication and also on the streaming platform that I watch it on, which is CBS All Access, they have it at the end of season one. This is how I originally saw it when I first started watching this show, I got to saw, I saw this episode at the, the, at the as a two-parter at the end of season one. So it was really kind of confusing because we had different actors playing important characters. So it's a little jarring if you watch it in that sort of order. It really should be watched at the beginning. So I've never actually seen it uh, as it aired as a TV movie. I've only seen it as a two-part episode. As near as I can tell, it's not much different except there's obvious, there's an obvious uh, in credit scene. You know, content-wise, I, I don't believe that there's any missing pieces to the puzzle. But what is interesting is that because of how it's currently packaged, or how it was at least packaged for streaming and how it was packaged when I saw it in syndication, is that the opening credits had to be changed because uh, James MacArthur was not in the pilot. Uh, Tim O'Kelly played Dan Williams. So when you watch the opening credits, the scene where uh, you would normally see James MacArthur's credit, it's basically blank. It's um, a scene from the, from the docks at night during the stakeout. That's the scene they use instead, and then they still keep uh, Zulu's credit and Cam Fong's credit. And it's just, so it's, it's a little bit interesting. And also, since it's done as a two-parter, you've got... At the beginning of the, the second episode, it's basically five or six minutes of previously on Hawaii Five O, So it's got that little catch up to it. So as it's broken up into two episodes, the first episode ends with uh, McGarrett finding the cocoon. And the second episode begins with him going to the governor after the recap. So even though I've only seen it as the two-parter and uh, never seen it in the TV movie, I'm still... I'm still 
for this podcast, I'm treating it as one whole entity, as the one big kickoff episode, because it was the pilot movie. And even though it's um, now packaged to play at the end of season one, I really do think that if you've never watched Hawaii Five-0 before, you need to begin with Cocoon. Not for any like major continuity reasons. There's very, I mean, basically the way the dramas were done, the big, the, what you got in the overall arcs is we do have Wolf Fat as a recurring villain, but he's usually doing different uh, things, different nefarious deeds whenever he shows up. So he could, you could watch a different Wolf Fat episode and, and automatically pick up, oh yes, we've dealt with him before. So there's not like a major continuity reason to watch this, first of all. It's just the opening scene of Cocoon is amazing, and I feel like it should be your entrance into the world of Hawaii Five-0. So basically what we have in this opening shot is we get to see what the what the cocoon is. It is a sensory deprivation tank in a soundproof room, which is next to the computer room that monitors the victim or the subject who is experiencing this sens sensory deprivation. Now what it is is that they have them in a wetsuit with like a pale Caucasian flesh-colored uh, hood, like latex mask that is form-fitted over their face with these black oxygen hoses coming out. These people are wired up for um, to monitor their vital functions and, and heartbeat and stuff like that. The wetsuit is bright red. They're tethered in this pool of water and uh, they're lifted out by crane to come into the computer room and you see all of this happening to Hennessy and he's brought into this uh, computer room and, and there's Wofat there and there's this uh, mysterious pipe smoking man who keeps urging him to get on with it and you see this whole bank of computers because it's 1968 and this stuff was was high-tech and what happens is, is they get him disconnected they prop him up on like a Frankenstein lab table you know, so he's he's strapped in, but he's you know flat on it on this table. It's now elevated, so he's standing up. And Wofat says, quite quite cheerfully, "Shall we check in on Mr. Hennessy?" And he cuts off the latex mask. He cuts like uh, from ear to ear, and he pulls it down. And as he pulls it down, uh, Hennessy's mouth opens in a scream. But instead of a scream, it's the, a music stinger. It is amazing because it is like something you would see in a horror movie and yet it is kicking off a 12 year long crime drama show. So it really is quite fantastic. You you get the feel from the from the beginning that you are going on a ride. And you are. After all it is a pilot episode. Pilot episodes tend to be a little bit more over the top, a little more extra. This one is definitely extra especially when we have a sensory deprivation tank that we use for torture purposes. So let's get a little bit into this episode. As I said, we open with the Hennessy torture scene. We actually don't see McGarrett until he is driving to the beach where they have discovered his friend's body. We get an interesting characterization of Steve in the, these first few moments is that he's very, he's obviously upset that his friend is dead, but he's also very smart because he quickly picks up on the fact that, you know, his friend had to have been murdered because he doesn't swim. He's also very businesslike. 
you need to get the coroner, you need to let him know he's dealing with a homicide, though Jack Lord pronounces it homicide, and I don't know why, but that will never fail to just catch my ear wrong. Sorry, Jack Lord. He's not the only one that does it, but still. Despite his uh, emotion over his friend's death, because he does, um, he does give like a nice little speech about him to Kono a little bit later about how he was, you know, this pale Irish guy. So he hated this island because he could get sunburnt going to the grocery store, but he was, you know, a really, a really great guy. You know, he does, he does feel some emotion and he is somewhat upset about his friend being killed. And you can see that a little bit too as he deals with the intelligent agents, their stonewalling of him and that sort of thing. You can see why he loses his temper. But you know, despite all of that, his his first thought is still, I gotta get to his apartment, see what, if I can find what he was working on. And that scene plays really well because there's no music. It's just wind chimes. Now, this scene opens, we see someone going through Hennessy's stuff and we see him tear up uh, the sheets out of his notebook and burn them in what looks to be like a coffee place fire pit. I The 60s were wonderful. I didn't even know these sorts of things existed, but apparently they do. It was, it's magical and I need one. Point is, is that, you know, he doesn't leave when Steve shows up. The landlady lets him in. So we know he's lurking about while Steve's looking around and all we hear is just the wind chimes until this guy appears and tries to kill Steve and Steve quick draw shoots him which is very it happens bang bang and it's very loud you know compared to the fact that we've been doing with just wind chimes and silence mostly it's really well done the way it is it's very um it's very tense because we know he doesn't know and we're waiting and you just have the wind chimes there's a lot of uh little elements in there that always that strike me a bit like a horror film like it's got this horror atmosphere to it the with the cocoon tank with the use of sound, with scenes like this. It's just kind of unexpected to see it in a crime drama like this. We're then introduced to our two intelligence agents, Brent and Miller, played uh, by Leslie Nielsen and Andrew Duggan, respectively. It's obvious from the get-go that Brent is like, thanks for your help, you can go now. And of course, McGarrett's not gonna back off his this first of all it's a homicide in uh, on his island and second of all it's one of his friends it's made quite clear that mcgarrett's not going to be backing off even miller knows they're not that steve won't back off and after steve leaves miller tells brent that's no way to handle mcgarrett so there's from the get-go there's some uh, immediate distrust being sown between mcgarrett and the intelligence off officers though it it's apparent that Miller, I think, understands Steve a little bit better than Brent does. And that distrust is capitalized on because both we have Miller trying to be cooperative, but he really feels like he can't because he's, you know, very by the book. And then we also have Brent, who's just flat out stonewalling Steve. The thing is, is our mystery man with wolf fat smokes a pipe and both of our intelligence officers smoke a pipe. So could one of them be working with the enemy? Maybe. Actually, if you do watch the, the opening scene, if your eyes are in the right spot, you will see who the, the mysterious man is because despite the way that this scene is shot and it's done really well because your eye, you are focused on one part of the screen, you completely miss a little oopsie over here showing who our, who our pipe smoking man is. 
But the thing is, is like I said, it is so well done because I have watched this episode now I don't know how many times and only just recently, this last viewing, caught the oopsie. So maybe try to look for that on the second or third viewing. Now the first member of Steve's team we actually meet is Kono and we see probably more of Kono than any other team member in the, the pilot episode. We actually don't see Danny until about 17 minutes in and that is at Miller's funeral and he doesn't say anything so we don't even know that he's somebody that we should be familiar with or that is somebody important. He doesn't have a line until about 24 minutes in when he's explaining the or putting together the pieces that they had that Steve had found in this coffee table fire pit. And we're not introduced to Chen Ho until like well past the 30 minute mark. I was like 34, 35 minutes in. So while we know it's very much uh, McGarrett's show, we know he works for the team and it's just kind of weird to see them introduced, uh, especially later, so far into the episode with some of the characters. But as part of Steve's team, they're all assigned their roles, you know, to get things done. Kono is assigned to find Rosemary Kwong and... Um, he ended up finding her in the lockup across the street because apparently she she's a graduate student and apparently she and some other kooks, as uh, Kono says, got arrested for protesting police brutality uh, in front of the precinct, which is great because uh, when Kono tells McGarrett that she's in the lockup, McGarrett's like, well, who did she kill? And he says, worse and explains that she was arrested for protesting police brutality and I'm just like, oh Kono, you sweet summer child, if you only knew. And we'll get back to Rosemary Kwong a little bit later. Uh, meanwhile, Dano is working on the pieces of the torn up paper that McGarrett found and he puts them together and he he shows Steve what he finds by using a an overhead projector. People of a certain age when they see this scene or when they hear me talking about an overhead projector, they're automatically going to start looking around for a notebook and a pen so they can take notes because that was our life. In the long, long ago, that's how we took notes in school. If you're not familiar with what an overhead projector is, you're just going to have to Google it because I don't think I could adequately describe it to you. At any rate, that's what Danny uses to uh, show Steve what he's found. And, and he's found this, this, this name, Arcturus, by piecing together three pieces of paper. And cocoon was the only word that he found that was all one word. He had to piece together Arcturus and that's the only word he could piece together. And they speculate what it could be relating to or pertaining to because um, it, there's no other, they have no context. And it's great because they, for whatever reason, there's a lot of repetition in this episode. Danny just keeps repeating the word Arcturus. And they establish that it's the name of a star, they establish it's from the Greek, but he keeps repeating this word. Happens, something similar happens uh, during the autopsy uh, scene when the doc is filling in McGarrett on the fact that his friend Hennessy drowned, but his eyes, nose, and ears were filled with gutta percha. Trade name, gutta percha. Gutta percha. Ever been to a dentist? Have a temporary filling? Yeah. White stuff the dentist uses, a strong sealing substance with a slight eucalyptus taste to it. Gotta perch. Gotta percha. They have the need to repeat the word gotta percha several times throughout that scene. I think there's one other instance of repetition like that, but I, I can't remember it. But it always just kind of strikes me as, as strange when that happens. 
And Chin Ho's job, I think, is just to be Chin Ho because, like I said, he doesn't come in until, like, way late. He, he makes his entrance uh, right after Rosemary Kwong gives Steve the last clue that he's looking for. And he comes bursting in and he's like, Chin Ho Kelly strikes again! And Steve, of course, very quickly says, you know, shut up and sit down. Which is a little rude. I mean, Chin Ho, just trying to have a good time at his job. So while we don't actually see him uh, working uh, any of the investigative aspects, we do see him uh, quite a bit at the stakeout. After all, he's the one fretting about uh, all of the diesel that the Arcturus is carrying and having it blow up. And Kono teases him and he says, do you want to live forever? And he's like, yeah, I do, actually. So we kind of get a sense of what everyone's roles are going to be throughout on the team throughout the throughout the uh, series. Anyway, getting back to Rosemary Kwong, when she and, and Steve first meet while well, she's in the lockup with a bunch of the other kooks, as Kono called them, her first uh, her initial reaction to McGarrett is, "I don't make deals with cops," and she is quite defiant until he tells her that Hennessy is dead, and then. She relents and she gets taken to the office for questioning and she and she gives the straight story that she and Hennessy were friends. She stays at the dorm at the university because she's a graduate student and men aren't allowed past the first floor so she offered to go to his apartment to cook. He gave her his key, told her, you know, to cook up a storm. He was supposed to be by the, there by six. He wasn't. He didn't get there until eight and then not long after he got there he got a phone call that and she said she only heard his side of the conversation, but it was only four words, and that was, yes, sir, the peer. And that's all that Steve needs to be tipped off that the Arcturus is actually the SS Arcturus, and that it's a ship. And so while he's talking to the port captain, he's really happy about all of this, and he he hangs up. He grabs his drink and his sandwich and goes rushing out of the room past everybody, kind of leaves them all there. Which was actually kind of a funny scene because he comes back in and he is like, what, do you guys all just stand around for a living or what? So they all leave. And when they leave, he goes to Rosemary and he's like, do you want to keep up your end of the deal? Basically, dinner with me tonight at Sands at 8. And I was just like, I have issues with this. Not only the ethical issues of, excuse me, sir, you're a police officer questioning a potential witness. This is an abuse of your power. But also the moral question of this is potentially your dead friend's girlfriend and you're hitting on her? I am uncomfortable with this. We're all uncomfortable with this. And when you watch the rest of the series, it, it really comes across as really kind of out of, out of character for Steve to, to be kind of like that. And it, it's sort of out of character considering what we know him up until this point. It's a little bit out of character and it's a little bit sleazy. And you're kind of just like, mm, no, I, I don't like this. And thankfully, we don't see much of this sort of behavior later on in the series. But in this episode, we do, and we are subjected to, to not one, but two very awkward and sort of pointless dates. It's just, I'm not sure what they were trying to accomplish, but... It was awkward, it was uncomfortable, it was unnecessary because basically the whole point of the first date was so she could explain that she and Hennessy were really just good friends. They weren't actually dating. So I guess it makes them both look a little less sleazy that they're getting, they're hooking up so soon after this guy's death. 
And I guess the, se- the point of the second date is that's where Steve was. That's what he did to make things appear normal after he had been programmed so he could be kidnapped. He went out on this other date with Rosemary. And, and this date, we actually got to go inside the club and we got to see a, a wonderful Hawaiian band perform and this lovely hula dancer, which Rosemary gets a little jealous of. And it's all very strange and awkward because why are you getting jealous when you were just making dinner for another man like literally two nights ago? What is this? So yeah, that whole that whole angle was just... A l- there were points where it kind of felt like filler. But I mean, it's a TV movie, so you, you're trying to give your, your characters a little more depth than what sometimes you can do when you're restricted to... Well, this would be back to 1968, so like 50 minutes. So you're trying to give them a little more three-dimension and you know you've got a little bit of conversation between him and Rosemary that kind of does that and you see how he relates to to her and and that sort of thing so I guess it kind of does but it's just I I could have done without it honestly there's also uh, a scene when uh, Steve is originally going to the the docks uh, to check on the Arcturus he realizes he's being tailed and he organizes basically to get this tail caught and but so there's an extended sequence where we're driving we're following steve and this tail driving through through honolulu and it kind of goes on a little bit long it's not exactly an exciting car chase it's he's leading him into a trap and it goes on a little long it feels a little bit like filler too but on the upside of this we're actually going through the streets of of honolulu and the back streets and the alleys so we're getting to see a side of honolulu that tourists don't get to see including this this back lot that was i don't even know it was just this this space in between all of these kind of rundown buildings it was it was kind of a nice find it was it was nice because when you think of hawaii and you're thinking of the, the sandy beaches and the the beautiful water and the palm trees and they have cities just like we do and they have those little untidy nooks and crannies too. So while that tailing scene probably went on a little longer, at least it would, it felt like it went a little long for me. We did get some uh, a nice feel, a nice uh, feel of the city, which was which was kind of cool. And that also gave us another scene of distrust because you know it's obviously an intelligence tale, and McGarrett does con- confront Brent about it and. Brent seems confused about it, but you don't know if he's pretending to be confused or if he's legitimately confused about why McGarrett had a tail. And I just realized how that came out. Why McGarrett had someone trailing him. McGarrett didn't actually have a tail. So like I said, McGarrett's second date with Rosemary leads us to him going down to the docks. He gets the phone call while he's at the restaurant or the club. And he goes down to the docks where the, the stakeout is set up. Now it's nighttime. I don't know how late it is, but it's definitely nighttime. So he's walking along these docks looking for, I guess, what his contact is. And he gets captured, according to plan. What is not according to plan, I think, is how they capture him. They legitimately throw a net on him. Now it's actually a really well done scene because, again, the, the use of silence there's there's no noise they don't use any music it's just the ambient noise of him walking around this dock area looking for whoever he's supposed to be looking for and out of nowhere you get the music stinger you get the people coming out and it's jolting and then you realize they have thrown a net on him and i'm trying to think when 
How often does this actually occur in real life? I think the last time I actually saw this on television, now obviously I don't watch a whole lot of, um, I don't watch a whole lot of new TV, but I can distinctly remember this happening in an episode of uh, the 80s Magnum P.I. It was the, the second episode with Carol Burnett and I can't think of the, the title of it. I can't even think of what year it came out. But um, they, those two were captured uh, in a net and they were looking at each other as if they registered how ridiculous this really was. This whole net thing is really kind of crazy. You just, it's not something you think about. It's not something that you think actually happens outside of television and you don't even see it used on TV that much anymore. Outside of like Gilligan's Island or something. You never see it used in all seriousness. So it's a little jarring to see it play it out. But then it's also revealed who our mystery pipe smoker is. And we get to see uh, Wofat's first meeting with Steve. He's been taken and prepped, put in the red scuba suit and, you know, strapped to the to the Frankenstein table and everything. And Wofat then explains to him exactly what's going to happen to him if he chooses not to answer his questions. The thing is, is that Kai Day, who plays Wofat, delivers this this speech in such a light-hearted and amused and charming way that it really is really, really creepy. It's horrifying. It is like listening to someone tell you a horror story, except this horror story is going to be happening to you. The brain is a computer, an incomparable computer. From the day you are born, from the moment the obstetrician slaps you on the backside, perhaps even before, your computer is receiving data, sound, smell, touch, temperature, change, pain, pleasure, receiving and sorting data at a fantastic rate. Case in point, an everyday situation. You drive your car. You approach the corner where you live. The computer is fed data. It calculates. The light signal, is it green, red? Did it, or is it about to change? The approaching car, how fast? Does he see me? The child on the corner, is he reliable? Might he run out into the street? Should I break? On and on, ad infinitum. The computer feeds. Agreed. No matter. That is the fact. What would happen? What would happen if for the first time in your life, all sensory input, all messages to the brain were shut off?
scream dies before it can reach across the dome. Then, perfectly counterweighted, you are submerged in a vat of water maintained at precisely skin temperature at 94.2 degrees. You drift, not knowing if you are facing stars or Earth. No sight, no sound, drifting, lost. And most terrifying, no messages. For the first time in your life, no messages. You can't whistle, drum your fingers, or even lick your lips. No messages. The time varies with each individual, but eventually the starved computer panics. After that, in minutes, a matter of just minutes, the brain blanks, washes out. What was a human being is now a vegetable, an amiable vegetable. I have it removed from the vat. I ask it questions. It answers. Mr. McGarrett, you choose. I have one question. Will you cooperate? Will you answer? It really establishes Wolfette as a formidable villain. I mean, he's already got a great look. He's got the shaved head. He's got the fantastic mustache. Um, he's got this charming little smile that's very, you know, it's sweet but sinister. And you realize when he's telling McGarrett all of this about how this is all going down, that he is really having a good time. And that just makes it even more diabolical. So obviously the... The answer to the question is, of course, Steve is not going to tell him what he wants to know, not willingly anyway. What's the point of undergoing all of that programming if you don't get to use it? And I didn't really talk much about that scene. When they decide to do this, Steve goes to the governor with all the evidence and governor basically calls in the head of the operations and they all meet. The, the head of uh, counterintelligence here, Jonathan Kay, we're going to see him multiple times. In this episode, he's played by James Gregory, who I love. He's just one of my all-time favorites. I love it when he shows up in my reruns because he's so much fun. But when the governor leaves and they bring in this psychiatrist so he can talk to Steve, he said he's looked through his record and, and he talks to Steve and says that he's a good candidate to do this. Therein, it kind of like um, gives you a heads up of just how creepy this is going to be because they're talking about literally hypnotizing him and programming him with false information and hypnotizing him so when he hears the word control he'll spill his guts with all of this far false information and it's i mean it just knowing that knowing even though you know that steve is programmed i mean the whole thing is really kind of chilling because they first of all they program steve for this and now steve actually has to go through with it and they're not exactly sure how the cocoon works until Steve is sitting there being told by Wofat 
And I think that adds a level of, of horror there because, you know, even though we know that Steve has been programmed, which is horrifying enough in itself, he's also going to be, you know, subjected to this torture to lure, you know, draw out that program. And it's like, well, how much of Steve is going to remain? So it's definitely very tense when he gets put into that pool. And like I said, I'm not going to spoil, but I will just say that it's Steve's endurance in the cocoon that impresses Wofat. And I think that really is what sets them up ultimately as as forever rivals. It's not just the whole breaking the law, but I think that Wofat sees Steve McGarrett as a worthy adversary. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about the cast, both the main cast and the guest cast for this episode, and I will do my best to keep it short because I know how I am. I can go on forever about this kind of stuff. So Steve McGarrett is played by Jack Lord. This is arguably the role he's most known for, but it actually came at the end of his career. His first credit was in 1949, and he did a lot of television and movies in between. He was in a Bond movie. He was in Dr. No. TV-wise, he showed up in Route 66, The Untouchables, The Fugitive, The Invaders, The Naked City. He also did several television westerns, uh, which I think is kind of weird because I never think of him as being a western kind of a guy. But he showed up in Gunsmoke, Have Gun, Will Travel, uh, Wagon Train, Rawhide. He was in Bonanza, and I've seen that episode. He was an actual bastard in that episode, which is really weird because I'm used to him as a good guy. He was also the lead in a short-lived uh, TV series about a rodeo writer called Stoney Burke, and he starred in that with uh, Bruce Dern and Robert Dowdle, aka uh, Chip from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which is one of my all-time favorites. Love me some sentient seaweed theater. Jack Lord's last credit is actually uh, a TV movie called M Station Hawaii. It aired in June of 1980. The last episode of Hawaii Five-O aired in April because basically he decided that once he finished Hawaii Five-O, he was going to retire to Hawaii, which honestly is a great game plan and my new goal to work on a series in Hawaii and then retire there and live out my days. So um, current Hawaii productions, what current Hawaii Five-O, current Magnum PI, you know, get in touch. Old, fat, white, bisexual women were the new big thing. So get on board. Okay, Tim O'Kelly played Dan Williams in this episode, and he was later replaced by James MacArthur. Here's the thing. He's fine, I think. It's just that Dan Williams is supposed to be a younger detective. He's supposed to be somewhat experienced, but not that experienced. There's still some newness and youngness there. And Tim O'Kelly definitely portrayed that, but he's got this face that just makes me think of golly gee whiz, Mrs. Cleaver. It just, it's a little too, um, yeah, it's a little too golly gee whiz. There, it needs, James MacArthur brought a little bit more of, um, it, there's still a youth there, but there's less uh, golly gee whizness about it. I don't know how else to explain it. But anyway, so... Tim O'Kelly, he doesn't have like a whole, a real long resume, but he showed up in Gun Gunsmoke, Big Valley, The Mod Squad, and he was in three episodes of Batman, including two with King Tut, where he played his royal jester. Now, as I said, James MacArthur took over the role of Dan Williams for 11 seasons, and uh, he's got a little bit more of a resume to him. First of all, he's the son of actress Helen Hayes and playwright 
Charles MacArthur, so he already had a great pedigree going in. But he showed up in movies like Swiss Family Robinson, Battle of the Bulge, Spencer's Mountain. Uh, TV-wise, before getting the role of Dano, he was was in Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Wagon Train, The Untouchables, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, where he played a real bastard, and that was really something to see. Not used to my beloved Dano being a bastard. He also ended up on Fantasy Island, Love Boat, and Murder, She Wrote. And he reprised his role as, as Dan Williams in the 1997 TV movie that was meant to continue the series. He then played Governor Dan Williams. And uh, Chin Ho, Kono Duke, Che Fong, and Truck are all involved in that. Which is weird for reasons we will discuss hopefully at a later date. And uh, Gary Busey and Russell Wong were the new FIBO team. I've not seen this movie, so I have no idea how glorious it is. But, I mean, you put Gary Busey in it, it must be magnificent. Okay, Jin Ho was played by Cam Fong. He played the role for 10 seasons. Prior to Hawaii Five-O, he only had a few uncredited roles in Hawaii-based movie productions. Afterwards, he did a few episodes of Magnum P.I. And he also did the 1997 TV movie for Hawaii Five-O and the movie Goodbye Paradise with uh, Pat Morita, James Hong, Danny Kamakona, who was in multiple episodes of Hawaii Five-O, and also with his son, Dennis Chun. And Dennis Chun is important because not only is he Cam Fong's son, but he was in the original Hawaii Five-O. He's now currently on the 2010 Hawaii Five-O where he plays Duke who is super important. He was super important in the original. He's super important now. You're not going to say anything to dissuade me of this. And he also did um, a few episodes of the 1980 Magnum P.I. and has shown up on the 2018 Magnum P.I. as his character Duke because Hawaii Five-O and Magnum P.I. share a universe. Kono is played by Zulu. I believe he only lasted four seasons. Prior to Hawaii Five-O, he was... Um, in a movie called I Sail to Tahiti with an all-girl girl crew. And it includes uh, Douglas Mossman and Richard Denning, both who have showed up on Hawaii Five-O. Diane McBain, who also showed up on Hawaii Five-O. Plus, she seemed to have a real affinity for doing shows with Van Williams because she ended up on Bourbon Street Beat. She was Daphne on Surfside Six, and she was Pinky Pinkston in the Green Hornet Batman crossover. Um, also in this movie is Pat Buttram, a.k.a. Mr. Haney from Green Acres, or better known to a certain generation of us. He's the voice of the Sheriff of Nottingham from the Disney's Robin Hood cartoon. Uh, after Hawaii Five-O, Zulu showed up in a few TV movies. He showed up on Charlie's Angels, Magnum P.I., and he did return for the 1997 TV movie. He was replaced by Al Harrington, which I will talk more about him when I get to him, because we'll actually see him pop up in a few episodes prior to him coming onto the show as Ben Kakua. Moving on into our guest cast, Brent is played by Leslie Nielsen. Uh, We'll see him in one other episode. If you do not know him, I don't know how this is possible, uh, aside from being in an airplane, police squad, naked gun, prom night, creep show. He was in Forbidden Planet. He was uh, the captain in the Poseidon Adventure. He's done all kinds of things. His first credit was back in 1950. TV-wise, he was in a short-lived crime drama called The New Breed. He was in a short-lived Bold Ones, The Protectors. Uh, He had recurring roles on Peyton Place, Dr. Kildare, and Bracken's World. He also showed up on MASH, Murder, She Wrote, Golden Girls, Love Boat, Fantasy Island, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. He's done tons of stuff. Miller was played by Andrew Duggan. We'll see him in former episodes. He was Cal Calhoun on Bourbon Street Beat. He was also George Rose in a short-lived sitcom called Room for One More based on the movie of the same name. 
He was uh, Major Ed Britt on 12 O'Clock High. He was also Murdoch Lancer in the TV show Lancer, which was like a Bonanza and Big Valley focusing on branching families. And he was John Walton in the Walton's TV movie that spawned the, the series. He also showed up in M Station Hawaii, the TV movie with Jack Lord. Uh, other TV credits of his include MASH, Wonder Woman, Chips, Charlie's Angels, Gunsmoke, Big Valley, Bonanza. And he's done a few mo movies, two that caught my eye, Frankenstein Island with Cameron Mitchell and John Carradine. You know that one's a winner. And something called House of Women with Shirley Knight, Barbara Nichols, Virginia Gregg, and Jean Cooper. It's a woman in prison movie. I've never seen it, but it sounds glorious. Rosemary Kwong was played by Nancy Kwan. She made her de debut as Susie Wong in the movie The World of Susie Wong. She sh also showed up in uh, Flower Drum Song, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, with Adam West and Nehemiah Persoff. Remember that last name? We will be hearing it a lot throughout the run of this. Jot it down. You'll be quizzed later. The Wrecking Crew with Dean Martin, Elka Summer, Sharon Tate, and Tina Louise. Something called Night Creature with Donald Pleasance. It has Donald Pleasance in it. It must be golden. Uh, she also showed up on TV in episodes of The A-Team, Trapper John M.D., Fantasy Island, and ER. As I said, Woe Fat is played by Kai Day. He showed up in movies like The Manchurian Candidate, 13 Frightened Girls with Murray Hamilton, Seconds, How to Murder Your Wife, and he showed up on TV shows like The Girl from Uncle, Wild Wild West, Kung Fu, Fantasy Island, Matt Houston, Jake and the Fat Man, and a short-lived show called Khan in which he played the title character. But there's only four episodes. Jonathan Kay is played by James Gregory. We'll see him in one more episode as a different character. I've already gone on about how much I love him, and here's why. He's Inspector Luger from Barney Miller, and I love him. Uh, he also showed up on uh, The Wild Wild West, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Big Valley, MASH, Hogan's Heroes, Twilight Zone, Mod Squad, That Girl, Columbo, Super Train, Love Boat, Ironside, Kolchak, The New Breed, and Bracken's World with Leslie Nielsen, Lancer with Andrew Duggan, uh, Sanford and Son, Emergency, in which he played Robert Fuller's dad. He was Nick Hannigan in a short-lived series called Detective School with both Randolph Mantooth, who was in Emergency with him, and Lawanda Page, who was in Sanford and Son. And he played Barney Ruditsky in the, a TV show called The Lawless Years that lasted for three seasons. As for movies, he was in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, The Secret War of Harry Frigg with Andrew Duggan yet again, Paul Newman, Vito Scotti, and Tom Bosley. He was in Clambake, and he was also in The Manchurian Candidate with Kai Day. Everybody's connected. The governor in this episode is played by Lou Ayers. We'll see him in two more episodes as different characters. His first credit goes all the way back to 1929. He was Dr. Kildare in a series of Dr. Kildare movies. There were like nine of them. And he was also in, uh, he was also Dr. Kildare in an unsold Dr. Kildare pilot. The TV series ended up getting made, but Richard Chamberlain as Dr. Kildare. Lou Ayers never made an appearance on that particular medical show, but he did show up on Ben Casey and Marcus Welby, MD. He was also Harry Wade Culver on a short-lived series called Lime Street with Robert Wagner. He showed up on Love Boat, Fantasy Island, Magnum P.I., 18, Simon & Simon, Trapper John, M.D., Wonder Woman, Battlestar Galactica, Gunsmoke, Columbo, among others. As for movies, he was in the TV movie uh, Salem's Lot. He was also in Battle for the Planet of the Apes and in Damien, Omen 2. Uh, he will be replaced as the governor by Richard Denning, which we will see him. We'll see him in one episode as Philip Gray, but the rest he's as the governor, and it's kind of the weird airing sequence because he plays Philip Gray in the middle of playing the governor. Richard Denning was in things like An Affair to Remember, Okinawa, Creature from the Black Lagoon, 
Creature with the Atom Brain, The Day the World Ended, Girls in Prison. As I've said before, I sailed to Tahiti with an all-girl crew. He did uh, several one-season shows. He was Dr. Greg Graham in The Flying Doctor. He was Michael Shane in Michael Shane. He was Steve Scott in a show called Karen. And he did uh, two seasons of a show called Mr. and Mrs. North where he played Jerry North. Other TV stuff he did, he was in McLeod, Cheyenne, I Spy. He was the voice of Lucille Ball's husband on the radio show, My Favorite Husband. And when it moved to television, CBS wanted him, but Lucy wanted Desi. So we all know how that one ended. Sorry, Richard. But it worked out well for him because he married Evelyn Anchors. And they he actually was retired or semi-retired and moved to Hawaii with his wife and family. And came out of retirement to play the governor for the duration of the series. The attorney general in this episode is played by Philip Ahn. We'll see him in two more episodes. He's a Korean-American actor whose first credit goes back to 1934. He was in two Mr. Moto movies with Peter Lorre, and then he played a character named Mr. Moto on a TV show called Johnny Midnight, which I've never heard of. Um, he was in the movies Diamond Head, Thoroughly Modern Millie, Halls of Montezuma, Back to Bataan. As for TV, he was a master can in Kung Fu. Um, he showed up on fifties on the 1950s Dragnet, The New Breed, Leslie Nielsen again, uh, Perry Mason, Bonanza, Wild Wild West, The Man from Uncle and The Girl from Uncle, Big Valley Mash, and Wonder Woman. He would be replaced by Morgan White. Hawaii Fight Voice's main credit. He also did a TV miniseries called At Mother's Request where he played a judge. But he's credited as a writer, producer, and actor in something called The Checkers and Pogo Show. He played Pogo. As far as I can find out, it's a Hawaiian kids show that aired for many years. Several other people that, in, that worked on that show, Fred Ball, Jim Demarest, and Dave Donnelly, all turned up in multiple episodes of Hawaii Five-O. May is played by Mitzi Hogue. She played Liz Platt in a short-lived series called We'll Get By with uh, Paul Servino, Willie Ames, and Jerry Hauser, a.k.a. Marsha Brady's husband, Wally Logan. She had a recurring role as Miss Essie on Here Come the Brides. She played uh, Natalie's mom, Evie Green, on Facts of Life. Uh, she also showed up in Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Partridge Family, Love Boat, Incredible Hulk, Chopper 1, BJ and the Bear, she did three TV movies with Andy Griffith, um, The Girl in the Empty Grave and Deadly Game, which are connected. Andy Griffith plays the same character. And then another one called A Murder in Texas. And she was also in The Incredible Shrinking Woman with Lily Tomlin. And my sister watched that movie so much when we were kids that I ended up hating it. Mitzi will be replaced by Maggie Parker for the rest of season one. And her only credit is Hawaii Five-0. May ends up getting replaced by a, a, a new secretary named Jenny starting in season two, and she's played by Peggy Ryan, who plays Mildred, the governor's sec secretary, in the first season. So if I remember, I will talk about Peggy Ryan in season two. Don't let me forget. The 2010 Hawaii Five-0 remade Cocoon for their season nine opener. And they did a really good job as far as I'm concerned because the one thing that that, that show the, gets right is they are very respectful of the source material. And as such, when they do stuff like this, like they remade Hookman, um, they brought back Ed Asner's character for a couple of episodes. So when they do stuff like that, they're really, really very good at it. Cocoon was no exception. It's only one episode, obviously, not a two-parter, which I think works in its benefit in the sense that 
Um, it gets rid of the need for a lot of filler. There's no Rosemary Kwong. There's no car chase with a tail or anything like that. The basic story remains intact. A friend of McGarrett's is found dead on the beach. He and Danny both are attacked when he goes to look into the dead friend's apartment. They're both stonewalled by a couple of the government agents, one of whom had a prior relationship with McGarrett. Ghetto Percha is also involved. The agent that McGarrett knew previously is the one that tries to give him the information. You still have the programming, you still have uh, the, the stakeout and everything. We're just involving different characters. Everything is a bit condensed. They're also, instead of, we don't have Rosemary Kwong, we don't have um, an elaborate tailing sequence. Um, instead, we have some references to some stuff that was going on from the previous season. So they, they took this original concept, which kicked off the series, put it in as their, their ninth season opening. And I think they did a really good job with it because they were able to utilize it to continue storylines they already had and to start new storylines, which I think was really smart. They also took, they took some of the dialogue, uh, especially the uh, ending when McGarrett's getting ready to be put in the tank and the guy is explaining to him exactly what's gonna happen. That's verbatim from the original episode. Doesn't play quite as well all credit to the actor, it doesn't actually play quite as creepy as the original does, but that's okay. The, and the opening was different because they're coming from a different place. They're at a different starting place, so they had to tweak the opening somewhat. But as a whole, they did an excellent job redoing the episode. And that, kids, is Cocoon. As far as pilot episodes go, it's a great kickoff to a really fun series. It's a little weird not having James MacArthur as Danny, but it's easily, it, you can easily get over that. It comes in big, it comes in bold, it lays the groundwork for what you're going to get for the next 12 seasons. It is definitely worth the watch. And like I said, make sure if you do watch it, you watch it at the beginning, not at the end of season one, where it plays really kind of strangely. You go ahead and think what you like, McGarrett. Thanks, I usually do. And that is also our first episode, successfully completed. A little bit longer than they're ideally going to run, but beginnings always have to be big, right? Now, if you wanna find me online because you have a strongly worded letter of complaint to send, I will direct you to two places. One, my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. Not only is it going to be the home base for Bookum Dano, but, um, you can find everything else that I'm doing on there because I can't just do one thing. So you can find all of my rerun junkie posts, everything I've ever written about Hawaii Five-0, as well as other TV shows and phenomenons that I love. Um, you can also find links to all of my published work, my Patreon, you can buy me a cup of coffee. I have a tip jar there called Writing for Tips. Just everything, you can find it there. And if you need to yell at me in real time, you can follow me on Twitter at KikiWrites. Thanks to Dan at Eventually Super Train for kicking off this idea and giving it a name. Thanks to Shan, aka Rusting Willpower, for the artwork. And thanks to my little network of fellow podcasters for their support and for totally understanding when I wanted to slam my head in a drawer. Thanks for joining me for this first episode. Hopefully it is the first of many, but we all know how I am, so no promises. Until next time, aloha. <laughs>